Our scripture lesson is from the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Ephesians. The first chapter, verses 1 through 12. And our subject, predestination. Ephesians 1. 1 through 12. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, when he hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. In this epistle, St. Paul is dealing with various questions with regard to the doctrine of grace or of salvation. It is significant that he begins with the groundwork of predestination. His opening words repeatedly stress that fact. He describes himself as an apostle by the will of God, by God's sovereign predestinating act. In the fourth verse he says, God has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. He locates predestination prior to the creation of heaven and earth. In the fifth verse, he speaks of being predestinated according to the good pleasure of his will. In the ninth verse, again, according to the good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself. He is making it clear that predestination is without respect to foreknowledge, that it is according to his good pleasure. In the 10th verse, he 
deprived the purpose that he might gather together in one all things. And in the eleventh verse, again, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Why? In an epistle dealing with the doctrine of grace and salvation, does Paul begin by bearing down so heavily on the doctrine of predestination? Let us examine the doctrine of predestination so that we can see why this emphasis here in Ephesians. Few things are more often deliberately misunderstood than the doctrine of predestination. It is, of course, difficult enough to understand in itself. And when it is deliberately twisted, deliberately distorted, it makes it all the more difficult to understand. The reason, of course, for the distortion is that so much is at stake. And as a result, it is done in order to obscure the basic issue. In order to understand the basic issue, certain things need to be brought into focus. First of all, predestination is an inescapable concept. The only alternative to it is to believe that all things are the product of total, absolute chance. Those are your alternatives. No one logically believes in chance. The idea is tossed out by some people in order to confuse Christians. But to believe in chance is to say there is no rationality in the universe, no science is possible, no order is possible, nothing exists except total randomness, total chance. Now, no one really believes that. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. All things reveal an order, a design, and a masterly one. Predestination is the doctrine that there is an ultimate power and law controlling all things. Now, even the ancient polytheists, those who believed in many gods, who believe that one God ruled one country and another God ruled another country, an idea we are getting again in a sophisticated form. The hippie intellectuals are reviving it. Even they held that behind the gods was karma or faith or some other predestinating force. On all sides, at all times, throughout the history of human thought. Predestination has been affirmed with or without God. Then second, we must say, the doctrine is only truly theistic, that is, God-oriented in its biblical form. Predestination can be karma, as in Hindu thought, or faith, 
has an ancient Greco-Roman thought. <clears throat> it can be dialectical materialism or determinism, as in Marxist thought. It can be a pantheism, as in Spinoza's thought. And there are endless other varieties. Now, metaphysically, all such ideas of predestination without God are impossible. They're illogical. They require everything that is the product of a mind, a supreme mind, without acknowledging that supreme mind. But of course, men want the substance of God without God himself. Third, we must say that when the doctrine of predestination is formally denied, it does not disappear. When men refuse to believe the doctrine of predestination as it is, as it is taught in Scripture, the doctrine does not go away, since it is an inevitable concept. It then accrues to some agency other than God. The doctrine cannot be denied. It can only be transferred to some other agency. And that agency has normally been something within the created order, most usually the state. The state as the agency of total planet. Thus, when men say that the doctrine of predestination is a horrible doctrine, what they mean is it is horrible if God is doing it. Not horrible if a group of human planners, scientific socialist elite, are doing it. Thus, next, we must state that the issue at stake is really this. Who is truly God? The God of Scripture or man? If man is his own God, then it logically follows that man will do the total planning of all things. Predestination by man is the modern goal. The existentialist Sartre has said, and I quote, Freedom is nothing other than a choice which creates for itself its own possibility, unquote. Now let's translate that into everyday language. If I have a freedom of choice, not as a creature, but as a god, and this is what Sartre says, and he comes out and says subsequently, this is the goal of man, to be god. It means it is not that I have a freedom to choose between alternatives open to me, but to create the alternatives. I can choose, to put it in a, on a concrete level, whether next year I want to be 29 or 16 or 50 or 56 or 60. I choose the possibility as well as making a choice between the possibilities. Now, if that sounds absurd, let us remember that this is exactly what they are aiming at. 
the ability to control life absolutely, to play with the life processes, to reverse that, to break the genetic code, and to create out of a baby that is to be born exactly what you choose. This is exactly what they're talking about in their literature today. This is ultimate, not secondary, freedom. Next, we must say that salvation means predestination. This is why St. Paul, in beginning this epistle about the doctrine of salvation talks first about predestination. It is impossible to save a man and for that man to be saved if he is not protected from all contingencies. The Savior in any system of thought is also the predestinator. The modern state seeks to save man and also predestinated. The two go hand in hand. Now the predestination of God is transcendental, that is, it is beyond the world, beyond the universe. And therefore there is no conflict between the freedom of God and absolute freedom, the freedom of a creator and the freedom of a creature which is a secondary freedom. And God as the creator creates all things in perfect harmony. When a clockmaker makes a clock, the hour hand and the minute hand are not in conflict with each other, although each runs in terms of a different concept. So God creates all things in harmony. Man is not frustrated, you see, by God's control. He feels no constraint, no frustration thereby. He only feels constraint when man seeks to predestinate. For man's control is imminent predestination. It gets into our works. And it tries to redirect all things from within the world to compete with man on his own ground. For a second cause to claim to be God means to war with other second causes and seek through over them. It denies man his only freedom, that of a secondary cause. Thus, when men deny God's predestination, they then assert, in some form, man's predestination. And predestination by man is the fountainhead of all tyranny. Now we begin to see, I think, why St. Paul, whenever he discusses the doctrine of salvation and the great discussions of Scripture are those of St. Paul on this subject, prefaces it with 
an assertion of God's predestination. The two are inseparable. You cannot truly believe in salvation as Scripture teaches it. Salvation by the grace of God through Jesus Christ without believing in the doctrine of predestination. When we examine the history of theology, we find that wherever this connection is broken, what happens? There have been times in the medieval era as well as in the modern era when men have bypassed the doctrine of predestination. When they have said, as many people say today, well, the simple gospel is enough for me. I believe that I'm saved by Jesus Christ, and that's enough. Every time in the history of thought when this kind of simplistic thinking has occurred, two things have ensued. First, another agency takes over control, claims the control of man from God. It has been the church on occasion. It has more often been the state. The second thing that happens is that the doctrine of salvation also disappears. And the state or the church claims to be man's savior. It is not at all surprising that the churches which began in this country, for example, by denying God's predestinating power ended up also denying God's saving power and are now preaching total planning by the state and salvation by the state. Nor is it surprising that those so-called evangelical churches which deny the doctrine of predestination and still talk about being saved by the blood of Jesus Christ are beginning also at the same time to preach total planning by the state. And are weakening every year at a very rapid rate the doctrine of salvation through Jesus Christ. The one follows from the other. And this is why St. Paul makes the emphasis that he does. And this is why we too must make it. Our salvation and our freedom depends upon the predestination of God. They always have. And this is why Dr. Bettner, in his very wonderful book on the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, over and over again makes the point that those who have upheld this doctrine and revived it have been the great champions, not only of Scripture, but of man's freedom from tyranny. The connection is a necessary one. In brief, the doctrine of salvation must be grounded in predestination or it is not salvation. And another savior predestinator 
quickly appears on the human scene to command man. The doctrine thus is of central importance to scripture, to the doctrine of salvation, and to the freedom of man. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of thy grace and mercy shows us before the foundation of the world and predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. We rejoice that thou art our God, our predestinator. And we rejoice, O God, that thou hast given us the word whereby we shall conquer, whereby we shall overthrow all the false gods, the false saviors, the false predestinators of our time. Establish us, O Lord, firmly in this thy word, that we might be a generation dedicated to victory, confident in thy power, and overthrowing the forces of darkness. Bless us for this purpose, we beseech thee, in Jesus' name, amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, on our lesson? Yes. Constraint is an outward force, whereas God's predestination is an inward force, you see. So, we are neither constrained nor feel constrained because predestination is totally one with our being and nature. And so there is no outward constraint upon us. Right. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, the word imminent can mean that which is uh, very close to us. Imminent disaster, a disaster that is almost present, that's imminent with an I. The other imminent with an A means that which is within us or in our context around us. And the doctrine of imminence basically, theologically, means that which is in the world just as man is in the world. What? Mm, not quite. You see, we can speak of God's imminence, but God is both imminent in the world and also transcendent beyond the world. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
come up before, but it is important and it is worth going into again and again. Why is the text used to translate the King James better than all others, and why is it a better translation? First of all, from the time of the Old Testament writers. The scriptures we know from all the records of Israel, as well as our knowledge of everything in the early church and through the Middle Ages, tells us this, that every manuscript of the scriptures was very carefully guarded. The Hebrew scribes, as well as the early church scribes, would copy the manuscript, since there was no typesetting in those days, word for word, and then check it. There would be at least two people at all times involved. They would first read it word for word, the one to the other, to make sure the wording was exact. They would then check it letter for letter, dot for dot, again to make sure that it was identical. Then they would count all the letters, again to make sure it was identical. As a result, the received text, textus receptus, as it is called, was a text that was carefully guarded carefully handed down from generation to generation, and therefore the accuracy of Scripture was retained. Now, what happened if they, after making a check, found out there was an error? All of you who have typed or copied anything know that sometimes your eye skips a line. You find the identical word at the end or the beginning of two sentences, or two lines, and you skip a line. And sometimes it's difficult to catch because there still is some kind of meaning. When we sent in the last proofs for my forthcoming book on biblical law, it was only at the very last reading that we caught such an error because it still made sense somehow, but as I read it, there was just a little bit of an awkwardness and a peculiarity there, and I thought, Something is missing here. I went back to the original, and sure enough, a line had been dropped out. Now, those defective manuscripts that had a line left out or a word left out were not burned. They were parchment. Or they were very costly materials, papyrus and whatnot. So they would be put into barrels, and then, with a very slow, difficult process, this very in 
indelible type of ink would be washed and scraped and gradually removed so the material could be reused. It was left there for such a time as they could do it. Now, naturally, through the centuries, not all these defective manuscripts were used up. In the modern era, as scholars went around and located these, they chose to say, aha, we have a superior reading here. Now, here is a text where the words of our Lord, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, are missing. Therefore, it was a later edition. And so they've gone through and use these defective manuscripts in the last, oh, about 80 or 90 years, very gleefully. The scholars who have done so have been uniformly hostile to the faith in Scripture as the inspired and infallible Word of God. And so they have continually reached out for more and more of these defective manuscripts. Now, it is significant that the Dead Sea Scrolls give us a manuscript identical with what we have. Those were good manuscripts, you see. The ones that were first discovered, which were complete and therefore valid manuscripts. We have a complete text of Isaiah from the Dead Sea Scrolls, the original discovery, and it's exactly what we have. And here it goes back to the time well before Christ. Now, the problem with modern translations, therefore, is that virtually all scholars except a small handful, of which Dr. Hill, who's the leading Bible study we had at the Christmas festival, is one, all these scholars follow the modernist method, even though many of them are evangelical. They still, for intellectual respectability, and because this is the only thing you learn in the schools today, go for the Westcott and Hart method. The result is they begin with defective manuscripts. The result is, no matter how brilliant they are as linguists, they're going to have a translation that is not altogether trustworthy. The King James translators first began with a received text. Second, they believed that the Word of God is the Word of God, infallible and inerrant. Third, they translated very, very carefully and literally, word for word, so that where there was a word understood, they put it in italics, so no one would get the idea that they had added something. For example, when I say word understood, if I say shut the door, grammatically, you shut the door is what I'm saying, but you is understood in a command. Well, in various languages, Many words are understood or are part of the declension or conjugation. These are put into italics. Most modern translations are paraphrases. That is, instead of translating literally, 
they take and give the meaning generally. A paraphrase is helpful sometimes. For example, I've cited this before, and I think it's a very good example of a helpful paraphrase. In the Smith-Goodspeed translation, which was very popular in the 20s and 30s, but which was very bad in some respects because Goodspeed in the New Testament, being thoroughly modernist, avoided all such theological words as covenant, which is there in the Greek, atonement, and so on, and gave vague American rendering, English rendering. So he tried to remove the theology of the original from his translation. Nonetheless, he translates the, or paraphrases, the Beatitudes thus, for blessed are the poor in spirit, he renders, blessed are they who feel their spiritual need. Now, that's not what the original says, but it's what the original means, you see. He gives the meaning of the idiom in English. So it's helpful. It brings out the meaning. But it's still a paraphrase. So a paraphrase has its place. But an accurate translation should be our basic concern. That's why I believe the King James is the Bible to use. If you have a good paraphrase, it's very helpful sometimes to turn to it. But how about like a Luke 2 Sunday where it says, Peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's the King James. Mm-hmm. A lot of other translations would be peace on earth and uh, something to men. It's a man of goodwill, yes. Yeah. Well. The King James is accurate. At Christmas, I went into the meaning of that, but you were away at the time. So, the King James is still the accurate reading there. Well, uh, it's not always in deletions. It's sometimes in... uh, A word that gets in there. Now, let's try to explain. Yesterday, when I was doing some writing, I was typing a quotation. It was a paragraph long. A long, long paragraph. The writer's way of wording things was very different from mine. And I found that I would be adding a word here and there because it didn't seem quite logical the way he worded things, and I'd have to go back and correct it. And Dorothy was typing something else that uh, I forget. Oh, that Dr. Van Till had written, and so she came to me and she said, "Did he really state it in these words? Didn't he omit a word?" Or didn't you omit a word in quoting him? And I said, no, I don't believe so. I think I recall that it seemed a peculiar wording to me, and I had to stop myself to avoid from inserting a word there. We checked the original, and that was exactly it. Where 
I normally would have put in a word, an article. He did not. Now, when you're copying, you do this, you see. So there are additions at times. As the uh, copyist inserted a word because it seemed natural to him. Yes. Yes. Now that's a good point. There are some cases of deliberate mistranslation. The word Alma in Hebrew uh, technically can mean young maiden, but it is always and only used, as scholars have pointed out, for a virgin. But since the various modern translators, like the Revised Standard Version, do not agree with the doctrine of the virgin birth, they simply have rendered it, the young maiden shall conceive, instead of a virgin shall conceive. Dr. E.J. Young has written at very great length to demonstrate that Alma means virgin, and there is no mistaking it. In fact, the whole point of Isaiah's prophecy would be ridiculous if he had prophesied that a young girl was going to have a baby. What's remarkable about that? He was saying that something miraculous and great was going to take place, that a young virgin would conceive. Yes. He was far from the worst. He was one of the better men in the committee. Yes. Yes. Yes, the purpose of King James 2 is to revise the language by bringing it up to date. Now, this was done once about a hundred years ago to the King James Version, and this is why in some translations, for example, 1 Corinthians 13, it will read, instead of uh, faith, hope, and charity, faith, hope, and love, because that's exactly what it should read in terms of our usage of language today. This one happens to be charity yet. I don't think the King James 2 succeeds in its purpose. I think it is a good idea to bring some of these uh, words up to date because the English has changed. I know during World War II there was, I've always enjoyed this little instance, a great deal of indignation at one uh, army base when uh, New Testaments were passed out to all the servicemen with uh, a little leaflet, Quitchy-like men. And the general blew his sack. He didn't want any quitting 
uh, recommended to uh, his men by a chaplain. Well, of course, the quotation uh, from Scripture, quit ye like men, means acquit yourselves. But quit has changed its meaning. The quick and the dead, another expression from the King James, the living and the dead. Well, I don't think there's any difficulty in understanding either, so I don't think there's really any great need to change those. Sometimes we do need to be told the meaning of some of these words, and uh, next Sunday we shall be dealing with one passage where... uh, The English in the passage has faded in its meaning. And when you get back to the original, and we have the original Greek word now in English, and uh, see what it means, the meaning is uh, startling. Uh, perhaps I'll give you just a hint of what it is, because there's so much more to the whole passage. But when St. Paul says, The Lord loveth a cheerful giver, what he is actually saying, and which cheerful once meant, but it has become weaker and weaker in meaning, is what the Greek original says, and which we have in English today. We've taken over the word. The Lord loveth and hilarious giver. Now, what does it mean when Scripture says, The Lord loveth and hilarious giver? Well, that's a very interesting and a very exciting point. And once you examine that in terms of what that word means and in the context, uh, it's a very startling thing that it opens up. And we will go into that next week because it's an extremely important point. Well, that's just a teaser for next week's uh, study. Our time is up. Let's bow our heads for the benediction. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.